Hi, friends. Welcome back to Nate Talks to His Friends About Jesus. All right, you ready to get back to some Nephi right here? So they're out in the wilderness. Lehi has been having some, some strong spiritual experiences, tells his family about it. And Nephi, to his credit, is like, I want some of that. And so he begins to think about this. He takes some time to be still and to be quiet. Honestly, we need to do more of this to ponder, to meditate, to be still. It's in that moment of stillness that the spirit is able to take him to an exceedingly high mountain. This tracks with Nephi's um, placing himself kind of as a new Moses, Moses traveling up to the mountain communion with the Lord, Nephi doing the same. But more than that, I'm just saying, take some time to be still. Quiet your body. See if you can passively disregard your thoughts and then open up to what God has in store for you. It can be a powerful experience, just like it's a powerful experience for Nephi. So um, as he's there, he begins an interview with uh, the spirit is what Nephi calls him. Uh, it's apparently in the form of a man, the spirit is, and, and it's kind of a, a teacher-student relationship here. And he, he starts by saying, what do you want? And I think this is an interesting question to ask yourself. What do you want? Like, are you just floating along life like a stick on a stream? Or do you have something you want? I think it can make a big difference when you, you know what you want. Even if it's small things, that's okay. And Nephi just says, I just want to see what my dad saw. He's like, do you believe that your, your dad saw the tree of life that he's talked about? And he's like, you know, I believe all the words of my father. And I love this reaction. The spirit cries with a loud voice saying, Hosanna, right? You're, Blessed art thou, Nephi, because you believe in the son of the most high God. It's interesting that he asks, do you believe in the tree of life? Nephi says, yes. And he gets excited because he believes in the son of God. He's tying those images together already right there. What brings you life? Jesus right there. Okay. And um, he says, he goes on to say, I'm going to show you these things so that you can like feel and taste these things that your father tasted. He's like, you're going to see a guy descending out of heaven and you shall witness. And after you have witnessed, you shall bear record that it is the son of God. So this is slightly different than what Lehi records. Lehi records one descending out of the mist of heaven, luster above the noonday sun, 12 others following after him, the brightness did exceed the stars in the firmament. Lehi's account is a more traditional apocalyptic account. Nephi, though, is getting really prescriptive that this one descending out of heaven is the son of God, those sorts of things. And then the spirit says to Nephi, hey, look over there. So Nephi looks and he sees a tree and it's like the tree that his dad saw. This is what he wanted, right? And he's like, dad was right. It was exceedingly beautiful, exceedingly white. And I just felt like it vibrated with me that this is precious above all. This is this is real. And so the spirit again says to Nephi, well, what do you want now? You've seen what your father saw. And that could be enough. He could be like, yeah, that's good. Thanks. But he says now, he's like, well, I want to understand this better. I don't know if I'm getting it at all. I think this is a huge Nephi skill. 
He is not content with the surface level. He asks. One of the most repeated phrases in all of the Bible is ask and ye shall receive. But frequently we don't. Nephi asks and it makes a huge difference. And it tells us something about our Father in Heaven who we're working with. He seems to to give you what you want. Sometimes he he gives you what you, you need and he is abundant and gracious. But he also allows us to choose. Agency is huge here. And it seems to be if Nephi is just content to see what his father saw, game over, that's it, we're good. He saw the tree, it felt good, we're good. But he's like, I want to know more. So the angel says, look. Um, and I looked and I saw Jerusalem. He recognizes it because this is the, his hometown, right? It would be easily recognizable to him. And I beheld the city of Nazareth. I don't know if he's ever been clear up to Nazareth, but apparently he's familiar with it. And in the city of Nazareth, I beheld a virgin and she was exceedingly fair and white. Now, time out. Remember, Nephi at the time of this vision is a teenage boy and trust a teenage boy to see a girl and point out that she is hot. I love it. I just do. It's real. It's real. And I saw the heavens open and um, an angel came down and stood before me and he said, Nephi, what do you see? Now, this method of question and response is kind of a new one in the Old Testament biblical pattern. It's really kind of a Socratic method, but Socrates is going to come a couple of hundred years later. However, it's not unusual for God to tailor his message to the prophet receiving it. Isaiah speaks very poetically and symbolically. Ezekiel builds models in the street. There's a huge diversity in how God teaches. So it's not um, unthinkable that to somebody like Nephi who's questioning to kind of have a dialogue with him. I just love that our Father in Heaven speaks to the person where they're at. And so Nephi, they have a conversation. So what do you see? Nephi says, a virgin, most beautiful and fair above all other virgins. Again, in case you missed it the first time, the girl is hot. Nephi says. And then the angel's like, do you understand the condescension of God? And this is such a critical question. Uh, and you should seek to answer it for yourself in the course of this book. What does it mean that God condescends? What does it mean that God comes down? And don't just rely on things you've heard in Sunday school or maybe even read before, absorbed from your culture. What's the Book of Mormon actually say in the text about God condescending and coming down? So, like, knowest thou the condescension of God? And Nephi's like, I know that God loves his children, but I don't know this. And this is, this is amazing. Like, I love Nephi's humility. Again, he's a complex human being. And he's no wilting flower, but he readily admits when he doesn't understand something. And uh, he'll ask for, for more knowledge. That's a powerful pattern. Don't be so concerned about looking good or looking like you know things that you're just like, ah, I don't get it. I want to understand it better. That attitude God can like do so much with. So the angel in response says, look, the virgin or the young woman that you saw 
is the mother of the Son of God after the manner of the flesh. This is so revealing in the context of the Old Testament here, okay? And th this is not something that is clearly taught in the Old Testament. And Nephi is just laying it plain that God is not just going to come out of heaven, right? Fully formed, like, I don't know, Zeus dropping on a lightning bolt, that he is going to be born of a mother on this earth after the flesh. Okay, th that that's fascinating. And it came to pass... And it came to pass that I beheld that she was carried away in the spirit. And after she had been carried away in the spirit for a space of the time, the angel spake and said, look. Now, I don't know, is carried away in the spirit in this sense a euphemism? I'm asking and leaving it un unanswered because I don't know. But I'm saying this out loud to you because I think this should be ha how you start reading the Book of Mormon. You should be asking questions here. Nephi asks questions all the time, and that's how he gets knowledge. As you go through the Book of Mormon, stop and be like, well, what the heck? What's going on? What does it mean she's carried away in the spirit? Like, is she moved? Like, Nephi moves location. It's a, it's a vision he's seen. When she's carried away with the spirit, she comes back bearing a child. What does that mean? Ask yourself these questions, right? And I looked and beheld the virgin again, bearing a child in her arms. So again, this is, is kind of a revolutionary way of looking at the Messiah as coming to earth, not mighty, but as helpless like us, like the rest of us. This is a transformative view of the Messiah. And the angel said unto me, behold, the Lamb of God. Um, again, we'll talk about this later, but Lamb of God is a new title. It's not one that's used until John in the Gospels and the book of Revelation. So, so Nephi is using some interesting terminology to talk about the Messiah, a child, a lamb, the son of the eternal father, the tree. Okay. Do you understand God's condescension? Usually when we think about God lowering himself, we skip right to the Garden of Gethsemane. Notice for Nephi that God's condescension begins with birth, not begins with death. Death is part of it, right? Atonement, suffering, that sort of thing is part of it, but it begins with birth. All right? Um, okay, so... Knowest thou the meaning of the tree of life now? And so interesting that he just doesn't give him an answer, but he shows him several things. And these several things are, are God coming to earth as a child. Do you understand the condescension of God? Do you understand the tree of life? And Nephi's response is yes. I understand that it is the love of God which sheddeth itself abroad in the hearts of the children of men, wherefore it's the most desirable of all things. This is huge. As Latter-day Saints, the central controlling aspect of the condescension of Christ is the love of God and it spreads everywhere and it is the most desirable of all things. And Nephi goes on, he says, it's the most joyous to the soul. And after he said these words, he said unto me, look, and I looked and I beheld the Son of God. And again, this, this Son of God title that he's used several times here, like the Lamb of God, it, it's not a title used for the Messiah in the Old Testament, this idea of a child or a son. Now, like the, the, the Messiah is always talked about as the high priest or the king. This is a unique Nephi addition in this context of Old Testament. 
And the picture Nephi is building for the Messiah is unique, robust, and uniquely Nephite view in this Old Testament time period, right? And I saw the Son of God going forth among the children of men. And I saw many fall down and worship at his feet. And I came to pass that I beheld the rod of iron, which my father had seen, was the word of God, which led to the fountain of living waters or the tree of life, which waters are a representation of the love of God. And I beheld the tree of life was represented representation of the love of God. So a couple of things here. First, the fountain of living waters and the tree of life are synonymous terms. Notice that it's the same thing. They're living or life. And also notice the the love of God, right? It seems to, to imply that faith in the Son of God involves living life in the love of God. Take that in for a second. The scriptures or the word of God will lead us to the love of God. If the scriptures are leading you to a different place, I submit to you that you're, you're reading them wrong. If the scriptures aren't carrying you to a greater sense of his love, his redemption, his light, a fullness, uh, try again. Because Nephi is pretty clear here that the, the scriptures or the word of God are going to lead you to the love of God. And that love is going to be transformative. And so then the angel goes on. So look and behold the condescension of God. And I looked and I beheld the redeemer of the world of whom my father had spoken. And I also beheld the prophet who should prepare the way before him. And the lamb of God went forth and was baptized of him. And after he was baptized, I beheld the heavens opened and the Holy Ghost came down out of heaven and abide upon him in the form of a dove. And I beheld that he went forth ministering unto his people in the power and great glory. And the multitudes were gathered together to hear him. And behold, they cast him out from among them. And I also beheld 12 others following him. And it came to pass that they were carried away in the spirit from before my face. And I saw them not. And it came to pass that the angel spake unto me and said, Look. So notice several things about the condescension. We know, number one, that the condescension of God is that he is going to be born, right? Born to a poor mother in a poor country, and he's going to experience the, all the weakness of being human. Part of the condescension of God is to become completely human. Then he's going to submit and be baptized. Then he's just going to spend his life ministering and lifting others and even being rejected by others. That is the work of the condescension here, right? Now the the spirit is going to have him look at a different angle, a different perspective, right? Um, and I looked and I saw the heavens opened again and I saw angels descending upon the children of men. And he said, look, and I looked and I beheld the lamb of God going forth among the children of men. And I beheld multitudes of people who were sick and afflicted with all manner of disease and with devils and unclean spirits. And the angel and the angel spake and showed all these things unto me and they were healed by the power of the Lamb of God and the devils and the unclean spirits were cast out. Like the Son of God spends time with those who aren't clean. 
Think about that. And I think it's easy to think about the sickness. Some of you are really good around sick people. For most people, there's innate, I don't know if this is the wrong word, but disgust almost when you see festering sores or illness or vomit or disgust. Like just it's, it's repellent to us. And Jesus goes there. And he ministers there and he heals there. And I, I submit to you that that is simply even a, a, a symbol of his ministry to all of us who are spiritually sick, broken, and unclean. The, do you knowest thou the condescension of God? It's him going among, being completely mortal and going among those who are all suffering this mortality and healing it, right? And it came to pass that the angel spake unto me again and said, Look, and the, behold, the Lamb of God was taken by the people. Ye, the Son of the everlasting God, was judged of the world. And I saw that he was lifted up on the cross and slain for the sins of the world. There's a lot of room for interpretation there on that, that phrase, slain for the sins of the world. Uh, you might think of it and open up to maybe different interpretations than you, you think before. Maybe it's not for the punishment of sins, but because the people miss the mark and can't see it, they kill their God. But regardless, either way, notice what the condescension of God means. It means that God himself dies in a painful manner. He lives as a helpless mortal born to a poor country, to a poor mother. He ministers to the sick and the broken. Uh, he heals, he teaches, and finally he is lifted up on the cross and dies. Now notice, in, a, in an Old Testament context, this is a gigantic leap, right? Th this seems so normal to you because you, you've grown up with this, but the idea that the true king, the Messiah, would be judged by the people, that, what a preposterous, ridiculous, insane idea. In, in kind of one moment, this angel, the spirit, is rewriting Nephi's understanding of what the Son of God is. And this new understanding of the Son of God is going to influence what you see throughout the rest of this book when it comes to Jesus Christ. It's going to be such a new, fresh take. And the, this vision is foundational to this. And, and here's the thing. Nephi would have understood about crucifixion. The, this is uh, something that's used pro pretty broadly by the Assyrians and the Babylonians. It's eventually going to be adopted by the Persians and then finally the Romans who are going to administer it to Jesus. So the fact that he talks about this is just fine and he, he understands this. But notice that Jesus, the Son of God, the Lamb of God, was slain. And I saw the multitudes of the earth were gathered to fight against the apostles of the Lamb. And I, I beheld that, that they were in the large and spacious building. And that that, that was the, the world and the wisdom thereof. And behold, the house of Israel had gathered together to fight against the twelve apostles. The house of Israel had gathered together to fight against the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And I saw him bear record that the great and spacious building was the pride of the world. You know pride, right? You're, you're good friends. Anytime that 
Um, you feel resistance, hatred, contention, separation. That's just pride there working in your heart. But I saw that the pride is eventually going to fall. And the fall was exceedingly great. And there was destructions of nations, kindreds, tongues, and peoples. Very apocalyptic, very similar vibe to the ending of Revelation, ending in justice, right, coming through it. So then the vision continues in chapter 12. The angel says, look, and behold the seed of thy brethren in the promised land. And I saw wars and rumors of wars and mist of darkness and thunderings and earthquakes and vapor of darkness. And since you just read the book of Revelation not too long ago, this should all look familiar to you, like a pattern God uses to help his people feel the need for redemption. When they're prideful, they're going to have to fall. There's going to be war, darkness, storms, earthquakes, so that you will be broken open to receive. And in that moment, Nephi says, Then I saw the heavens open and the Lamb of God descending out of heaven. And he came down and showed himself to them. Uh, This is a key thing. When things look terrible for you, when you feel like you're the most broken you are, you can trust that the power of God is coming out of heaven. Just wait for it. And I bear record that the Holy Ghost fell upon 12 others and they were ordained of God and chosen. And the angel spake unto me, saying, Behold, the twelve disciples of the Lamb who are chosen to minister to the seed. Another unique prophecy here. And because of the faith in the Lamb of God, their garments are made white in his blood. Very apocalyptic phrase. You can find it there in, in Revelation 7, too. And behold, three generations shall pass away and a fourth generation. And then they're going to be gathered together of, uh, to battle. And the angel spake and said, Behold, the fountain of filthy water. So there's two waters, two choices, life and pollution, right? Pride and faith. They're two opposing kind of diametric forces. And the mist of darkness are the temptation of the devil, and he blindeth eyes and hardened hearts. That's the same phrase as Pharaoh right there, right? And the large and spacious building is the vain imaginations. And the, the great and terrible gulf divided, divides the good and the evil. And they're the words of justice, the, even the words of the eternal God, the Messiah, who's the Lamb of God, right? And your seed and the seed of your brethren are going to contend with one another. And I saw the seed of my brethren overpowering the people of my seed. He sees the destruction of my, his people. He sees his descendants dwindling in unbelief. He, he sees them, this loathsome, filthy, idle people, very us versus them. He sees it as a thing of darkness. We're going to discuss that, that darkness later in a different section. But today, just he, he sees the defeat of his people and it's heavy on him. And he looks and he sees other nations in chapter 13. And what are you seeing? He's like, well, it's obviously not the house of Israel. I see the Gentiles and I see the formation of a great church. Behold, the formation of the church, which is most abominable of a, over above all other churches, which slayeth the saints of God, tortureth them, bindeth them down, yoketh them with a yoke of iron and bringeth them down to captivity. 
And it came to pass that this was the great and abominable church. And I saw the devil was the founder of it. And I also saw gold and silver and silks and scarlets and fine twine linen and all manner of precious clothing. And I saw many harlots, very apocalyptic language, like the, the whore riding the dragon in Revelations, right? The prostitute riding the dragon. And the angel spake unto me and said, Behold the gold and the silver and the silks and the scarlet and the fine twine linen and the precious clothing. And the harlots are the desire of the great and abominable church. And also the praise of the world, they do destroy the saints and bring them into the captivity. Now let's be clear about one thing. As they talk about the great and abominable church, this is not the Catholic church. I know you probably read that in Mormon doctrine, but it's not. Even at the time of its publication, President David O. McKay deeply disagreed with that take in Mormon doctrine, along with literally thousands of other things in that book. But for our purposes, know that Nephi is going to use the term church differently than how we use church. Church in Greek means assembly or collective body. Nephi is going to use it kind of similar to that. Church is going to mean just a group. And, and, and like Nephi uses church because it keeps things simple and clean for argument's sakes, but reality is a little bit more messy than that. He's, he's basically saying in this vision that there's going to be groups of people that oppose God's constructive work. And they're, they're going to use things like money, sex, and power to gain control, even acceptance and rejection to pressure people. Now, there were probably those in the Catholic Church that fit this bill anciently, sure, but there's also Latter-day Saints who fit this bill of belonging to the church of the devil who use money, sex, power, or peer pressure to gain control over others. Heck, for that matter, there's Buddhists, Hindus, Muslims. I don't know. Basically, there's going to be anybody of any denomination that's going to probably fit that bill. This is not just saying us versus them, but it's learning strategies that bring us down. In other parts of the Old Testament, they use the word Babylon instead as a placeholder. It's same, same here, right? And he says, I saw many waters divide the Gentiles from the seed of my brethren, and behold, the wrath of God is on the brethren. Now, you're going to see the phrase wrath of God throughout this book. And usually you're going to notice that wrath of God is just natural consequences of their actions. Look for it, observe it for yourself, see if you can see it right there. And I looked and I beheld a man among the Gentiles who was separated from the seed of my brethren by many waters. And I beheld the Spirit of God came down and wrought upon the man, and he went forth upon the many waters, even into the seed of my brethren in the promised land. Now, most of the time this has been interpreted as Columbus. And I think that's a fair interpretation. But sometimes people struggle because like, um, the historical fact says Columbus isn't a great guy. But here the Spirit is moving upon him. How do we reconcile these things? Most of the time people have to think either he was a good person that's misrepresented or he's a bad person and then he doesn't really have the Spirit. But what you're forgetting is that he is not using the term Spirit in a modern sense here. This is an Old Testament person using the term Spirit. And, and throughout the Old Testament, spirit is used differently here than we would perhaps use it. See, Isaiah in Isaiah 10 uses the spirit of God, almost the exact same phrase to talk about the king of Assyria being used by God, even though he is also condemned by God. So the spirit can move a person, use them as a tool, while at the same time, they don't have to be actually a good person. 
Cyrus is called a Messiah in Isaiah 45 and is used by God to send some Jews back and rebuild, but at the same time, he's not really a beacon of righteousness. Additionally, throughout the Old Testament, the actions of the Spirit are seen as means of manipulating the, the material world. The Spirit moves on the waters in Genesis 1. Um, the Spirit carries people away like it just did with, first, with Nephi here in 1 Nephi 11. The Spirit conveys technical knowledge like you can see in Exodus 31. The Spirit also leads guys like Othniel to war in Judges 3. I think in Judges, you get a great example of this in Samson. Samson is a dirtbag, but consistently the spirit moves upon this highly questionable person, helps him like tear a kid goat apart, helps him kill. Um, the, the spirit also, like you, you see in Samuel, is the one that, that helps Saul when he gets angry, kill a bunch of Ammonites. Here's what I'm saying, basically, is that the spirit here in Nephi's time period and usage, when it comes upon Columbus, doesn't make Columbus a good, righteous people. It doesn't mean that all of his works are approved, but it makes him a tool in God's hands to move something forward. Okay? Can you live with that? And we can talk about it more later if you want. Just call me up. Anyways came to pass that the Spirit of God is wrought upon other Gentiles. I submit that this is the same usage, right? And they come apart. And it came to pass that the multitude of the Gentiles upon the land of promise, and I beheld the wrath of God that it was upon the seed of my brethren, and they were scattered before the Gentiles and smitten. What do you do about this? That descendants who are innocent are punished with the wrath of God here? I, here's the thing. Um... Nephi is clearly like seeing this through the lens of a middle-aged man who has gone to war and killed and seen others killed by his brothers. So he doesn't really have anything good to say about his brothers. So he's going to filter it through this lens. I'll just exercise caution with that there, right? And again, most of the time when you're going to see the usage of the wrath of God, you're going to see just natural consequences coming out here. And I, I saw that, that my, my people were slain, right? <clears throat> and I came to pass that I beheld the Gentiles who had gone forth out of captivity. They did humble themselves before the Lord and the power of the Lord was with them. Synonymous, the spirit of God, power of the Lord, right? And I beheld that their mother Gentiles were gathered together upon the waters and upon the land also to battle against them clear reference we can say to the revolutionary war here right and the wrath of god was upon all those who gathered together against them and i nephi beheld that those who had gone out of captivity were delivered by the power of god out of the hands of all other nations there there are really are some miraculous things historically that take a uh, take place here i think david mccullough makes a, a pretty cogent argument for that in his book 1776 if you want to check it out Mir miracles all over the place here and it came to pass that i nephi beheld that they did prosper in the land and i beheld a book and it was carried forth among the gentiles this is the bible right knowest thou the meaning of this book and nephi's like i don't have a clue okay Again, I love this about Nephi. He's willing to admit when he doesn't know things. And so he says, Behold, this is the book that proceeds out of the mouth of the Jew. Um, 
most of the compilation of the Old Testament portion of the Bible is going to start after the scattering that Nephi and Lehi have prophesied, right? After Babylonian captivity, that's when it's going to compile. So Nephi's seen this future compilation of the Old Testament, right? And it's a record of the Jews, a record of the covenants of the Lord, um, and with the house of Israel, right? It's the, the fullness of the gospel when it goes out from the mouth of the Jew. Um, and the, out of the mouth of the 12 apostles and the witnesses of the Lamb, it goes forth in the purity and a truth and by the hands, right? And that then he sees something interesting. But the book they have, it goes forth in purity, a witness of Jesus Christ. But I see that that church, which is the great and abominable church, most abominable of above all other churches, they have taken away from the gospel of the Lamb many parts which are plain and precious. And they have done this that they might pervert the right ways of the Lord, that they might blind the eyes and harden the hearts of the children of men. Wherefore thou seest that after the book has gone forth through the hands of the great and abominable church, that there are many plain and precious things taken away from the book. Okay, time out just for a minute here. So sometimes in the tr interpretation of the Bible, there may have been people who were malicious like they're kind of describing here. I think most of the time, like these are just flawed humans. It's guys like Jerome who translates the book from Greek to Latin, one of the most influential translations of all time, the Vulgate ver version of the Bible. Jerome, from what we can see from historical records, seems to be super angsty about sex and sees everything bad in his life as a result of Eve and sex. So he sees us as flawed and fallen and in need of punishment. So he translates Jesus' word of metanoia, moving beyond thought, new life, fresh beginning, all of those meanings. He translates that word as repentance, self-punishment. Uh, like it's plain and precious truth, gone. Disgusting. I hate that translation. But I don't think he's being like mean about it. Or you got guys like well-meaning Augustine perpetuating, perpetuating an idea of depravity of mankind. These are crucial changes. But it's not like a cabal of specter. It's just we're all idiots. There's not a single parent who's currently not in the process of screwing up their kids. Not that we're trying to. We're just all imperfect. Likewise, there's probably not a single scribe who hasn't botched the delivery of the fullness of the gospel. Nephi and Mormon, and maybe even more so Moroni, are open about the fact that the ability to deliver God's message in written and then translated form by the medium of flawed humans is tricky as can be. So I'm asking you to let them be human and see if you can still see God's light come through their, their stuff. Just like, I don't know, you can look at your parents and be like, they weren't perfect. You love them. Hopefully my parents say, my, my kids say that about me. We'll see. It's still up in the air. But we're all just kind of making it up as we go. We're just, all just trying. That being said, there are jerks in this world and there were probably a few who used scriptures as tools of suppression. And I'm fine with Nephi using this kind of language for them. I'd just be careful with it. And after these plain and precious things are taken away, and I would submit to you that really the biggest 
thing that is taken away is the nature of God, the true loving nature and redemptive nature of God. And this spiritual path of transformation that happens when we have faith in him. Those plain and precious truths are removed, diminished, changed. Then you see that the book go out to the Gentiles and you see many stumble because of these things taken away. That's interesting. That's interesting. Yea, in so much that Satan has great power over them. And it's not that people who are stumbling are straight up evil stormtroopers. Rather, they're lost, sad, lonely, and broken. Um, and then Nephi sees that God's not going to destroy his, the seed of his brethren, that he's going to move things forward. He's going to be merciful to the Gentiles. After they stumble, I will be merciful. And in that day, insomuch that I will bring forth unto them in my own power much of my gospel, which shall be plain and precious, saith the Lamb. And I think a good bit of what that is coming is going to come from the Book of Mormon, this message of hope that can come, this message of Jesus, this message of redemption that happens relentlessly through this book, right? And I will manifest myself into thy seed, and they shall write many things and minister to them, which shall be plain and precious. And then this book is going to be hid up by the gift and power of the Lamb. And that shall have my gospel, my rock, my salvation. It will have the tools to bring forth Zion and help people have the gift of the Holy Ghost if they endure to the end. And they shall through this be lifted up into the everlasting kingdom of the Lamb. And the result is going to be peace and tidings of great joy. And it's going to be wonderful. From this section, you can see what God values, what truths he finds most important for us to get out of this Book of Mormon. Things like uh, uh, the, the tools to bring forth Zion, a people who are one heart and one mind and there's no poor among them. It's going to be a book that helps you to endure, meaning that we're going to be able to face hardship and pain rather than running for it. It's, it means that we're going to feel good about this message of love and peace and we're going to publish these tidings of great joy to everybody that we come about. In simple terms, this is the gospel. It's this gospel of building others, feeling peace, publishing peace, enduring hardship and pain, getting through it together and building up. Like if you've got lost on some other branch of the gospel, this is the main core here, the redemption through Jesus Christ and the outcomes. So come back to this main trunk, follow it through with the Holy Ghost and see if it takes you back to that same branch right there. This is not condemnation or compulsion, but it, it, it wins through acceptance, submission, and love. It's the, the kingdom of the Lamb who, who wins victory through enduring pain and death. That's what he's modeling for us. That's the plain and precious truths that this book is giving you, right? And so this book, the Book of Mormon, goes forth, right? And at, with the book and the Bible, and together these books convince of Jesus Christ. They convince that Jesus is resurrection. They help us see the truth of the Lamb of God, the Son of the Eternal Father, the Savior of the world, and that all men must come unto him. This is the, the purpose of this book. And that help people to have one God, one shepherd over all the earth.
And know that it's kind of an up-down system. Nephi even says, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. God is going to redeem us. In chapter 14, and it came to pass, if the Gentiles shall hearken unto the Lamb of God in that day, that he shall manifest himself unto them in word and also in power and very deed unto the taking away of their stumbling blocks. That is such a cool promise. Try Jesus on this. We always say that the word of wisdom or tithing are testable promises. What about this one? Trust that God has saved you already past tense and see if you feel power come into your life, especially with things that trip you up easily. Notice the order though. You don't get rid of the things that trip you up first on your own and then you feel his power. You trust him first and then he helps you get rid of your stumbling blocks. But you can't be stubborn about it or harden your heart, right? Um, and then he goes on to talk about just the, this prophecy of the future, these two groups of people, one with blindness of mind trying to use money, sex, and power to trip other people up, and others who are using faith and who are building people up, and there's no poor among them, and the conflict that comes between these two ideas, right? Basically, it's either you trust Jesus and you let go, or you suffer. That's it. And and I'm telling you, this does not mean like Church of Jesus Christ versus everybody else. Like you can 100% be a baptized bishop in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and have no actual trust in the true and living God. So like, it's just, we choose to trust God, right? We, We choose to make Jesus the controlling feature in our lives. And when we do, there is strength, there is power, there is preparation, there there is um, help that comes right here. And then he goes on to describe a, a very revelatory, meaning book of revelation type of end to the world and this conflict that goes on and the disputes and the hard hearts and things like that. And then poof, the vision is over. So I don't know what you do if you're Nephi here, right? You got some really good truth that God is teaching you, but it's also some really scary and heavy stuff. And he's kind of weighed down. He sees that he's going to have kids, but his kids are going to get wrecked. And those that are left aren't going to see God's true nature. And it's going to lead to a lot of sorrow and heaviness. And so he goes back from having this spiritual experience to the tent of his father. And as he goes back, feeling kind of heavy and weighed down, he sees his brothers and they're arguing about what their dad had said. And Nephi steps in and and he's like, what are you going on here? Like, how come you just don't ask? And they're like, well, God's not going to tell us stuff like that. And he's like, guys, just ask. So anyways, they're like, okay, we don't understand what he's talking about when he talks about all this like olive tree stuff. And... um. And Nephi's like, well, did you ask? He's like, well, God's not going to talk to us. He's like, you're, you're not even trying. Like, why don't you ask right here? And basically Nephi says, okay, I asked. And basically what it means is that there's a scattering of Israel going forward. And, but there's going to be a gathering in the latter days when we come to a knowledge that we forget and that we're going to be restored by Jesus. And so then his brothers are like, well, what about the tree of life? Um, what about the tree that our dad said, saw? And Nephi's like, well, it's the tree of life. What about the rod of iron? Well, it's the word of God that brings us to the tree of life. Nephi's like, come on, just listen to God and he will help you. Well, what about the river of water? 
And Nephi's like, well, it's the gulf that separates the, the wicked from the, the good, right? Um, and then he kind of wraps up with his brothers and he's just like, guys, basically there's two paths you can take. You can trust God and eat the fruit and have a good life now. Or you can go without it and kind of fight and struggle on your own. It's kind of your call. And I think the same question is here for us. With all the history, all the visions, all of that, it's really simple. There's two groups of people. Those that trust God and life becomes rich and meaningful right now. And those that don't and it stops, it starts to be a struggle. What does this decision really actually look like in day-to-day life? I don't think it's nonstop bliss. I don't think it also means you're in the temple 24-7. I think it means you live real life and you seek to build trusting that the Lamb of God has got you. I don't know what real life looks for you, like for you, but my real life looks like going to work, driving kids to activities and trying to figure out what to have for dinner. I mean, it, it keeps happening every night at dinner. I don't even know what to cook most of the time. It, it, sometimes it just means going to church every week and sometimes being bored at church. And it's really mundane stuff. So here's my question in the midst of all this mundane stuff. Is it possible to have a sense of the tree of life and the joy of God in the middle of it, the magic of it all? I think the key is to trust Jesus enough to be aware of where you are. Most of the time we're physically where, where we're at, but mentally we're lamenting what we don't like about the situation. We're planning a way out. Uh, we're worrying about something we botched. We're missing life. So this week when you're driving kids, talk to them. When you eat tacos for dinner, one of my specialties because it's super easy to make, Tell your kids stories about when you're young. They don't even have to be interesting stories. Just tell some stories. Yesterday, I wrestled with my youngest son. That's the whole story. Nothing happened. I was just there with my youngest. It was fun. In all of this, don't get lost. Nephi is saying there's just basically two paths you can take. You can trust God and eat the fruit of the tree of life now. You can have life more abundantly. Or you can go without. It's your call. What desirest thou? In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.